3: Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History Magazine, and welcome to our new weekly BBC History Magazine podcast. This is the first part of our July 2011 podcast series. Because so many of you have been downloading our monthly edition, we've taken the podcast weekly, so I hope you enjoy the history that's coming up.
4: In this week's edition... The most central message of the crusade that he's going to preach is that if you participate in this war, you're going to gain uh, a remedy for sin. That was
5: Tom Asbridge talking about the crusades. I think the straight road is a bit of a misnomer. I, as far as I can tell what the Romans brought us was genocide and Christianity. And that was Manda Scott
3: on what the Romans did for us. BBC History magazine is Britain's best-selling history magazine, on sale every four weeks in all good news agents or by subscription. Just visit our website www.historyextra.com for more information. For the first interview this week, my colleague Rob Attar, the deputy editor of the magazine, has been in conversation with Tom Asprich of Queen Mary University of London. Tom is an expert on the Crusades, and in the July issue of the magazine he's written a thought-provoking feature – on medieval east-west relations, in which he makes the point that there is a lot more to cross-cultural exchange in the period than war and
2: hatred. Could you first tell me briefly exactly why the Crusades began in the first place?
4: Well, it's actually quite a vexed question in many ways. It should be simple, um, but there's quite a lot underpinning that question because it really has bearing on some major issues, not least the whole issue that I'm particularly fascinated at the moment by, and that's the relationship between Islam and the West in history, and I think one of the reasons why the Crusades uh, are important in that question is because we have to think carefully about whether we see crusading wars as acts of Western aggression. Whether we see them as you know, something started, in essence, you know, without some provocation by Islam. Or whether we see them as wars of defense, either because the West is severely under threat of actual direct invasion, or because seemingly some vested interests of the West, or more broadly, Western Christianity are under threat. Now the reality, I think, with the, the question of the Crusades is that you can potentially configure the evidence to present uh, you know, a different range of, of views and opinions. And we can see this in the way historians have thought about the question you asked, why the Crusades began, um, with people, some arguing very, very strongly that it's absolutely uh, a war of Western aggression. Others saying, no, 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 this is, this is an act of defense, western christendom is under threat or more potently that eastern christendom is threatened by the muslim world that pilgrims are being abused and tormented when they're trying to visit the holy land and that the west is trying to do something uh, to intervene i guess i i i want to i want people to be aware of the fact that we don't have perfect evidence for this i think we have very very um spotty evidence very minuscule evidence on some issues particularly the the Uh, issue of whether pilgrims are being abused in the Holy Land and that makes it very difficult to come to a definitive and and um, Absolutely defensible position. I think my view is that there's there's an element of both things at work that the West is to some extent uh, Deciding to take this action on its own uh, For its own purposes because the most important thing that this crusade is destined to do is to try and take the holy city of Jerusalem and Jerusalem has not been lost In the last few years, it's actually been lost more than four centuries earlier. So this is no sudden act of vengeance uh, that's been enacted. It's something that I think is a bit more calculated. At the same time, you can't argue that Islam is uh, absolutely without uh, blame, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Islam has aggressed against the Western world in centuries before, and there's been a rising tide of aggression against the Eastern Christian Empire, the Byzantine Empire, in recent decades. So I think there's a... There's a multiplicity of factors uh, in play.
2: And who were the people who instigated the First Crusade?
4: Well, there we have a a clearer picture in many ways. Um, The prime mover, most historians would agree, is the Pope of the day, a man called Urban II. And I think one of the things that makes Urban interesting is, is partly his background, but also his view of what the papal... Uh, office should entail what you know what his ambition should be And I think on the one hand he views the crusade as a as an opportunity a real opportunity to Expand and confirm papal authority and it's often forgotten that uh, at the time when this crusade is preached in 1095 the papacy has been incredibly weak in preceding years um, So I think the crusade is part and parcel of, of urban trying to get his message about the authority of Rome, the authority of the papacy hearkened to by the west um, and he, he's also aware alive to the idea that if this crusade takes off and is successful, that it might lead to an expansion of papal authority uh, in the East as well. But I don't think it's all self-serving. I also think that, the, that Urban as Pope believes, ardently believes, that upon death he will have to answer to God for every single soul in the West that's under his care. And I think he sees the crusade as a new way of offering a path of salvation for these Western Europeans. Because the the, the most central message of the crusade that he's going to preach is that if you participate in this war, you're going to gain uh, a remedy for sin. You're going to have some of your sins and the uh, the blame based on uh, placed on you from sin uh, washed away by participating in this crusade. And I think that's another reason why he wants to uh, promote and preach this crusade because he's offering a, a new path to God for his flock
2: So that's quite an incentive ready for the people to go on the crusades
4: Yeah, I mean that's the other massive uh, and vexed question that's uh, Still discussed very heatedly amongst historians With regards to the first crusade and, and to later crusades and the, you, know, you have to think why are people? deciding to participate in this this venture and they do so in their thousands in their tens of thousands and they also do so, I think, pretty full in the knowledge that this is going to be very, very difficult, that they're going to suffer um, you know, physically and mentally when they go, and that many of them, I think, are aware of the fact that they might not come back. And I think within that context, we have to recognize that many of them, of course, not all, and we can't use a, um, a simplistic answer to explain the motives of every single crusader, but on balance, I think the majority of them, uh, were driven primarily by the idea of devotion that this was going to be a religious act and that it was going to allow them To find a new path to salvation
2: So what kind of people were going on the Crusades?
4: Well, it varies enormously over time and one of the things that I'm, I'm fascinated by with this movement is that it's it's Not a singular thing. It's not static. It starts in 1095 Um, The period that I'm most fascinated by is the period when it's very active in the Holy Land. And that lasts for about 200 years. and lasts till 1291. But crusading continues after that for for many years, for for centuries, in other theatres of conflict. And what we see in this this overarching period of crusading activity is uh, a huge variation in terms of the type of people that might participate. uh, And the the kind of focus that crusades uh, might have in terms of their objectives. But if we take the first crusade as an example of of how it began, then we see a a real range of of participants all the way from uh, the leading princes of the time, not not kings, that only comes later in crusading history, Um, but some of the most important potentates uh, across the west, all the way down to to beggars and paupers, and from every cross-section of society amongst them, uh, in between those two, uh, there are participants as well. Now that idea means that you're going to have a, you know, a military core at the heart of a crusade, but lots of hangers on as well, lots of people who aren't uh, able to fight. And as time goes on, crusades uh, through the 12th and 13th century at least, tend to try to become more professional, to become more focused on combatants, and particularly once, not, once kings become uh, embroiled in the crusading uh, war for the Holy Land from the mid part of the 12th century onwards. Um, then we see more royal participation and more specifically knightly and warrior participation.
2: What specifically were the Crusades looking out to achieve?
4: Well, um, the First Crusade seems to have had a twin goal. Um, On the first hand, to to bring aid to the Eastern Christian world. So there's quite a lot of debate about what that actually means. Uh, I think probably primarily it means bringing aid to the Byzantine Empire, the survivor of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire based in Constantinople. Um, But on the second hand, uh, and perhaps most potently and most um, provocatively in terms of bringing about a reaction for enlistment in the crusade, this war was also about retaking possession of the Holy Land and most specifically retaking possession of Jerusalem, the Holy City, and this is, this is a site that's so important for Christians because uh, it's viewed as the, the place where Christ underwent his passion, his death and his resurrection. So it's the central site of Christian faith. But of course, it's also the third city of Islam, as well as uh, the, the main site, site of devotion for Jews. And the fact that this, this city is so sacred and is held in such esteem by these great world religions means that the Crusades are going to play out as a as a religiously based conflict uh, for centuries because the the first crusade against all expectations and uh, really quite remarkably manages to retake Jerusalem in 1099 and what we really see for the next 200 years is a ongoing war for dominion over the holy land
2: so the first crusade actually manages to capture Jerusalem and then the later crusades are designed to reinforce Christian position in Jerusalem is that right?
4: Yeah, largely. I mean, it, in the end, it, doesn't all, it, it isn't all about Jerusalem um, because Jerusalem falls in 1187 to Saladin. The third crusade that follows, which is often the, the crusade that people are, uh, at least in terms of participants uh, in England, are most familiar with because it's the one from the West that ends up being led by Richard the Lionheart, Richard I of England, um, against Saladin. Um, that tries to get Jerusalem back but fails. Um, Jerusalem is only... Uh, Retaken or reoccupied by Christians in the 13th century for a number of decades Um, But then it's lost again and after that it's never retaken by the West uh, until the 20th century. So it's At its core. It's about um, Defending the Holy Land defending Jerusalem and once Jerusalem's Fallen then it's about trying to hold on to the the last vestiges of what we call the crusader states the settlements created um, in the wake of the first crusade that survived for the best part of 200 years
2: What was the response of the Muslim people living in the region to the Crusades?
4: I think that's one of the most fascinating questions, actually, when we think about um, the Crusades and we try to place them in historical context. Because one of the things I've been trying to do uh, in the last couple of years, particularly, is to think about the Crusades as part of a wider history, to think about what the Crusades mean for the relationship between Islam and the West. Um, That's been very much bound up within um, this new MA program I've set up at Queen Mary. Uh, University of London, which is uh, an MA in Islam in the West, something that's taken me outside my sort of comfortable um, resonance in the Middle Ages and made me think about earlier history But also, you know, early modern modern and contemporary history right up to the modern day and modern Islamism And I think it's only when that wider lens that it's possible to to start to think about the significance and the resonance of the crusades uh, in a fuller and more meaningful way and that, the question you're asking about how Islam reacts is actually very, very pertinent to that because you'd think on the surface of it, if I I told you, okay, Jerusalem is the third city of Islam, the Crusades are supposedly being waged or are invading the Muslim world, you'd think that Islam's reaction would be almost instantaneous, it would be vociferous, there would be a huge backlash against the advent of the Crusades, Uh, and very quickly we would see what you might call a, a, a total war a a form of conflagration um, that would see really embittered violence, constant uh, fighting and military activity. Now, the reality is very, very different from that. And that's one of the things that I think makes the crusade so intriguing. Um, And there are a number of factors at work, I think, that that create a different reaction in the Muslim world. One of them is that it's actually wrong to describe it as a Muslim world. It's a, a world ruled by Islam, but it's a much more fractured And variegated world than just one simply populated by Muslims even within the Muslim world. There's a there's a some basic um, divisions not least between the Sunni and the Shia uh, strands of Islam But in most of the Holy Land of what you might call Palestine or Israel um, or modern-day Jordan Lebanon and Syria then there are many many uh, other peoples living under Muslim rule They might be Eastern Christians of various denominations. They might be Jews um, they might be Bedouins and so this is not a universally Muslim world and one of the reasons why Islam is slow to react I think is because uh, there's a lot of disunity within um, the world they rule and also that in many ways They are acculturated to the idea of invasion in in the course of the 11th century And new powers has, uh, has arrived in the Muslim world um, the Turks and they've taken control largely of of Sunni Islam and Baghdad and the north and Syria and Mesopotamia uh, okay, they, they, are, they end up being a Muslim power, but they're just one more wave of invasion that's taken place over the centuries uh, preceding. And so I think it takes some time for um, the Muslim rulers of the Holy Land to recognize that the advent of the Crusades means that something new has happened um, and that perhaps, if, you know, perhaps this is going to be a, a different type of neighbor or adversary. And that's one of the things that remains in question through the 12th and 13th century.
2: And um, something you've talked a lot about in the article is how relations between Muslims and Christians at this point wasn't just about violence. What else was going on with the two faiths? Well,
4: I think that's a really remarkable and stunning thing about, about studying the, you know, the detail of the Crusades. When you can think one thing when you look at it on the surface, you think this is going to be a story of total war. But when you get your fingers dirty, when you really sort to of dig into the sources and think about the detail, then it just doesn't hold up to that kind of simplistic presentation. So one of the most striking things is that very, very rapidly, almost immediately, um, the people who settle in the Holy Land, the Western Europeans who start to colonize these crusader states, are accepted as part of the established world around them. It's partly because I think they adjust pragmatically to the reality that they are far from home, that they need to um, incorporate themselves into the you know, the pragmatic reality of the world around them. And the same way, in the same way, it's true that the Muslim powers surrounding them accept them as, a, you know, effectively a new piece on the chessboard. And this expresses itself, for example, in 1108, so less than 10 years since the first crusaders take Jerusalem. Um, in 1108, we see uh, an alliance between Muslims and Christians. So what, what we actually see is the, the prince of crusader Antioch, one of the crusader states, Allying with his Muslim neighbor, Aleppo, against another force. And in this case, that force is actually another crusader state's leader, the Count of Edessa, allying with forces from Mesopotamia. And this is very striking. This shows us that you know, the idea this is all going to be about Christian versus Muslim, crusader versus Muslim, um, just doesn't hold up to, uh, under a close uh, inspection. It's a much more varied and much more interesting pattern, I think.
2: And was there other things going on as well? Was there cultural interaction and economic interaction as well in this period?
4: Yeah, I think uh, there's two strands that we can look at there. Probably the most important, actually, is trade. Uh, And one of the things that that I find most uh, fascinating about this period of the Crusades is that in many ways you'd think the advent of a war uh, and uh, supposedly a, an ongoing conflict for dominion of the Holy Land between Islam and the West is going to actually to bring about some kind of interruption to trade to contact. It actually does exactly the opposite. It proves to be a massive boost to the amount of trade that's taking place between East and West. And largely that's because um, in the course of the, the conquest of the Holy Land, um, these crusader states managed to get possession of the main ports in uh, on the eastern seaboard or the eastern Mediterranean, and those ports act as the connectors between the Levant, uh, what we technically call the Near or the Middle East, uh, and Europe, and particularly groups like the Italian city-states, states like uh, Venice, Pisa, and Genoa, become very active in perpetuating the idea of trade, in encouraging it, in acting as the you know the middlemen in terms of bringing goods, first of all, from the east to west, and then later on actually from west to east. And what we see is, I think, uh, particularly by the time we get to the 13th century, the creation of a uh, kind of a reciprocal benefit for both sides from the fact that trade can continue even as war is going on. And both sides have a vested interest in, in allowing this to progress.
2: So you say that the Crusades went on for quite a long time, but by the end of the 13th century, the Middle Eastern Crusades seemed to have come to an end. Why was that?
4: Well, they came to an end in as much as there were no more major wars uh, launched from the West that invaded the Holy Land. And they certainly came to an end in so much as um, there was no no further success in retaking uh, the mainland of the Levant. It's not as if... The West totally forgot about the Holy Land. And, and um, into the 14th century and beyond, we still see people talking about the, the desperate need to try to retake the Holy Land. Um, but the ability to, to actually mount such uh, a venture, the, the ardent support for it, that does seem to have wavered somewhat uh, over the successive centuries. In essence, what, what brings about the end is the, is, um, the fall of the last vestiges of Western settlement in the Holy Land. And that, that comes to a head in 1291 with the fall of the, the great crusader city of Acre. Um, but that's, you know, that's what happened. I suppose what we need to say is, is why it happened. And, and really there's one fundamental reason and that's that there's a, a new superpower that's appeared in the middle of the 13th century um, that is far more uh, militari- militarily capable um, than any other Muslim power before it in the in the era of the Crusades, it's far more determined, um, and it's a, it's a dynasty known as the Mamluk dynasty, uh, effectively a slave soldier dynasty, founded by an incredibly capable but also very very ruthless uh, and determined warrior leader, a man called Baybars Sultan Baybars, and it's effectively the the world of the the Mamluk Empire that he forges, almost like the perfect military state. Uh, that gives Islam based out of Egypt and, and growing uh, into Syria and beyond the power to be able to Snuff out the existence of the crusader states at the end of the 13th century
2: So it was really just by brute force that the Crusaders pushed back after that
4: In large part it was um, What's interesting about the 13th century is, is in many ways if we look at global politics and we look at it from a, a wider lens From the West, we can still say that, you know, the Crusader states seem important and the Crusader's part in what's happening in the Holy Land seems significant. If we actually took a different perspective, however, if we look through the eyes of the Mamluks, in many ways, the Crusader states are a bit of a sideshow. Um, They've continued to be useful and quite interesting in trading terms. In many ways, it's kind of continues to be useful through much of the 13th century to allow the Crusader states to survive because they offer this gateway to the West. But um, there's a much bigger power, a much more dangerous power, uh, actually, that has emerged from the east. And that's the Mongol Empire from the start of the 13th century that's uh, been threatening Western Europe. But by the middle part of the the 13th century, it also brings major threat to Islam. It sacks Baghdad, um, putting 30,000 people to the sword. And Baghdad has been the historic center of Muslim power for centuries uh, up to this point. Uh, and so in many ways, it becomes a triangular contest for power over the Holy Land. Um, and the major players in that are the Mamluks and the Mongols. And really, the Crusader States are, are the, the weaker point of the triangle. And in, in many ways, I think the Mamluks, uh, under Baibars and his successors, they pick apart the Crusades. When they're not too busy fighting the Mongols, they think, okay, we'll, you know, we'll pick apart the Crusader States when we can, when we want to. They have that much military power. That much military strength that they really are able to do it when they wish.
2: So the Crusades that seem now like such an era-defining moment actually to the Muslim people of the time may not have been as important as other concerns.
4: I think their importance uh, rose and, f- and fell uh, if truth be told, in, in the period itself. I think there are, there are some um, scholars, particularly those who specialise in the, the study of uh, the medieval Muslim world, who Take pleasure in saying things like that. There was no crusader era uh, for Islam. Islam never recognized this as a sort of distinctive period Never thought it was that important I'm not convinced that that's entirely true uh, Because I think the Crusades did bring about some massive changes within the Muslim world They brought a new enemy that was at least for a century uh, a a powerful potent and potentially sometimes, uh, you know, very uh, dangerous threat to Islam In many ways, actually, because of that threat, they also allowed for periods of greater unity within the Muslim world than had ever been seen before. For example, if we look at the rise of Saladin in the 12th century, someone who brought uh, about the emergence of a new dynasty, a dynasty we call the Ayyubid dynasty, you could argue that Saladin wouldn't have been able to do that without the the presence of the crusader states. Um, Because the way he unified Islam was to say, look, there is an, an external enemy here, someone defiling our our holy land, our holy spaces, and most importantly, holding onto Jerusalem, our third most sacred city. We must unite um, to drive these people into the sea. Now, of course, he said, we must unite under my banner. It's me that's going to lead Islam to victory. Um, But I think the advent of the crusades uh, enabled Islam, even if it's only sporadically, to achieve these periods of unity because of this, this idea of otherness, a card that's being played by both sides, by Christians and Muslims alike, brings about a, a, a drive to intermittent conflict and a drive to an awareness of the need for unity within your own borders.
2: And just finally, do you think that people nowadays have an inaccurate view of the Crusades then based on what you've been telling me?
4: I think they do. Um, I think that's not surprising. I mean, it's, you know, this is an era, uh, many centuries uh, divorced from our own age now. Um all periods of history, I think it 's very easy for all periods of history to be given over to caricature and uh it 's very easy to simplify something that 's an extremely complex tapestry of of different uh factors at play you know there, there are moments of of significant brutality um bold and, you know extraordinary warfare taking place in the course of the Crusades at the same time, there are instances of trade. Uh, there are instances of contact of cultural interchange taking place in this in this world of the crusader states So it, I don't think it's a world that lends itself necessarily to simple um, Summary you know in one line or, or in one uh, Texture but to me that's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it fascinating because when you immerse yourself in it You become aware of its complexity and its diversity and also I think it, it's potentially its right place in history um, the question is, you know, how do you, how do you combat things like um, Hollywood films or the like of Kingdom of Heaven? How do you combat uh, misunderstandings about, you know, the nature of crusades? And I guess all we can do is um, try to publish uh, work, try to talk, you know, talk about our work in a public setting in as authentic a way as possible. Uh, and hope that over time uh, the message slowly gets through. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the
1: search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show
0: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, hel pcom slash history extra.
3: So that was Rob Attar talking to Queen Mary University of London's Dr Tom Asperidge, whose most recent book is The Crusades, The War for the Holy Land, published by Simon & Schuster. And as I said, Tom's feature entitled Traders and Crusaders is in the July issue of BBC History Magazine. Tom is also one of the historians who have nominated sites for the new BBC History Magazine book, 100 Places That Made Britain, written by myself, published by BBC Books. The premise is simple. I asked 100 historians to each nominate a place of particular significance in the course of British history, and armed with their reasoning, I visited each place and wrote about why it mattered then and what you can see now. It's on sale for £14.99 and all good news agents. But if you take out a new subscription to BBC History magazine before the 18th of July, it's yours for free. Plus, you save 30% on the newsstand price and have the magazine delivered to your door. I'm afraid this offer only applies to UK residents. If you want to take advantage of the offer, simply visit www.bbcsubscriptions.com forward slash history magazine or call 0844 844 0260 and quote the promotional code POD140. As I said, the closing date for that offer is the 18th of July 2011. Next, I've been talking to the historical novelist Manda Scott, who also writes as MC Scott. She is author of the Boudica Dreaming and Rome series of novels, She is also the founder and chair of a new organisation, the Historical Writers' Association, which is holding its first event, a lecture series, within the English Heritage Festival of History that's taking place at Kelmarsh Hall in Northamptonshire on the 16th and 17th of July this year. Manda will be speaking at that event in a debate with fellow historical novelist Tony Richards, where they'll be discussing, the Romans, what they did for us. I caught up with her to ask her to reprise her view on the topic. By way of preface, um, perhaps I should say that we've had a, an email conversation about this and, uh, and we, one thing you mentioned was that uh, your view on this is that the Roman invasion was the worst crime perpetrated against the British people and we haven't yet recovered the standards of social equity we had before they arrived. So that seems like a reasonable point to kick off. Why
5: did you say that? Well, partly, I used to say it a lot because I was a member of the Crime Writers Association and it was my excuse for being on crime panels. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I don't believe it isn't true. Um, We had an amazingly advanced, stable culture when the Romans came. We, contrary to everything that the Romans said, because naturally, when one invades a country, one spins against the inhabitants of that country furiously. So, to an extent, what's written down spin, and because we didn't write anything anyway, and because winners write the history, it has taken a very long time to uncover who we were before Rome came. But who we were was a very productive culture. One of the reasons Caesar came in the first place was because we were producing more grain per area than Egypt, and Egypt was Rome's breadbasket. The people from Iron Age, from Butzer Iron Age Farm have done a lot of work on this, and We were producing more grain per capita in the southeast of England before the Romans came than at any time until after the end of the First World War when essentially agriculture became the production of food from oil. So while it was food produced by human blood, sweat and tears, the pre-Roman Britons were the most productive of any of our cultures um, until the Romans came and split up the whole system. Of the tribal culture. We were incredible artisans. We know in metal, we can guess probably in other media as well, but we have, for instance, the amazing Snettisham hoard and when I was writing the Boudicca books I went down to London and spoke to the curator of the British Museum, the curator of that hoard, and he had recently had in a Chinese expert on whatever was the equivalent Chinese dynasty, I don't know what it is sadly, Um, and It was thought that the Chinese were the most advanced metal workers in the world at that time. But he looked at the Torques particularly, that are part of the Norfolk Horde, and he said there was nobody anywhere in the world that could match the quality of workmanship of that for another 1,200 years after the Romans disbanded our culture. So we we were very productive, but it was a very... Um, labor intensive production. So the Romans spun this idea that we were small barbarian tribes constantly at war with each other. And I think it is likely that we were a warrior culture, but I think we will have been a warrior culture in the way a lot of the Native American tribes were warrior cultures, which is to say the warriors fight, but the killing doesn't happen. Because you cannot be producing grain at the levels that we were producing it if all of your able-bodied adults are busy protecting your fields defending them from attack or attacking your neighbors. It just doesn't happen. But Butzer has demonstrated how incredibly labor-intensive the farming was. So I don't think we were constantly at war. I think we had a very peaceful, very stable culture. And from what we know of the way the people lived, which is to say they lived in groups in roundhouses, um, that we didn't have the bizarre concept of a woman passing, the ownership of a woman passing from her father to her husband. As far as we know, the genders, there was equity of the genders. We know very little about the tribal leaders of the time, but two of the five that we know were women. And in both cases, they led their people to war. That's Boudica and Cartimandua. Mm -hmm. And Cartimandua was pro-Roman, and they sent in the Ninth Legion to get her out when her people finally rebelled. And then everybody knows that Boudicca led the revolt against Rome. And from my limited experience of battle reenactment, You don't follow anybody into war unless you think they have a good chance of bringing you out the other side, not when you're a volunteer army. So I think we can assume that these women were good at what they did. And you don't have to be a man to fight in the way that the Celts fought, the ancient Britons. It wasn't a case of lifting heavy packs and marching over long distances and digging a fort at the end of it. You got on your horse, you rode to war, you get off your horse, you fought with a very big sword, you get back on your horse if you were still alive, you rode away again. None of that takes... A huge amount of strength. What it takes is an extraordinary self-belief, because when you stand on a battlefield with a sword, it's the person who has the strongest self-belief that wins, not necessarily the person who is the most powerful. Okay, let me just pick you up on a couple of things. There, you, you talked about the
3: stability of, of Iron Age society. Um, yep. I mean, surely there is there's quite a lot of archaeological evidence for a reasonable degree of brutality and military action. I mean we have the recent find of of, of, of several um several dozens, maybe maybe hundreds of bodies, women and children in a yes. in a hill fort in uh, in Derbyshire, I think. Um doesn't doesn't that indicate to you that that, that the Iron Age society wasn't perhaps the nicest place
5: to I, i'm sure it wasn't I, a group of pacifists um i think i think but an awful lot of the things that we used to think were evidence of iron age warfare there were um bodies found with bolts and things particularly along the south coast have actually turned out to be a lot later and and to have come from the period around the time of the roman occupation so i would hesitate to necessarily place all of the evidence pre-roman but yes i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure Humans are humans and people kill each other. I'm sure we weren't a group of people, complete pacifists, sitting cross legged, humming and contemplating our navels. But I don't think that we were the illiterate, hide wearing barbarians communicating in grunts and whistles that just needed the nice, kind Romans to come along and civilize us in the way that was certainly taught when I was at school.
3: Mm. Okay, so um, if we take if we take on board your assertion that that's, that the pre Roman society um, wasn't uh, wasn't the, the dark dangerous place that the Romans um, put about, what about the what the Romans gave us. I mean, there's some obvious things that are often trotted out about, you know, the Romans' gift to uh, to their straight empire roads. and to Britain. Straight roads, for instance. I mean, what about straight roads and, and, and a road network more than just straight roads?
5: Well, yes. But isn't that interesting? Because I live in South Shropshire and very close to here, they have very recently uncovered a pre-Roman Iron Age road that had all of the engineering that we previously thought only the Romans had. And when I lived in East Anglia, there was... Um, the Igneal Way, which bits of it dated back to the Stone Age. I think there was very probably we were incredible tradesmen long before the Romans came. We were trading flints from um, Grimes' graves right across the continent in the Stone Age. You know, and there will have been a road network. It wasn't necessarily a road network that the legions could march up. But it was obviously adequate for getting out the silver, and the tin, and the flints, and all the things that we exported. So, um, I think the straight road is a bit of a misnomer. As far as I can tell, what the Romans brought us was genocide and Christianity, the two being quite closely linked, and the subjugation of women by men. They brought us the domestic family. They broke apart tribal living in roundhouses and made women into chattels. And that was their longest lasting. And that and Christianity was the longest lasting and greatest impact of the Roman civilization. And, and I wouldn't say neither of them was necessarily a huge advantage. I think we could have lived without.
3: Okay. Um, so in conclusion on this then, uh, presumably you'd have preferred to have seen Boudicca succeed in her rebellion. Oh, yes.
5: Can you imagine? I, it would have been, yes, yes, I would have preferred her to win if she had had the sense to stay fighting guerrilla tactics and not get lured into a lime fight, then I think she would have won. I don't think Nero would have sent any more legions back into Britain because um, Suetonius tells us that they. Seneca had invested 26 million sesterces in Britain. 26 million! You know, even if you convert that to pounds, it's a lot of money, and actually it's probably closer to billions in our our numbers. And the Part of the reason they went in so heavy-handed was because they were trying to re- get their money back again. If they had lost four legions, I don't think they would have sunk another four trying to subdue us. We would then have had... The Druidic College on Mono would have been intact. It would have been there as a focus for the dissent that still did continue for quite a long time after the Boudiccan Revolt in Gaul. Um, I think Nero would have been very much destabilized. If he managed to continue as emperor at all, it would have been of a Roman state that was then locked in wars in Parthia and Judea and really would not have been looking west again, I don't think. When they got beaten in Germany at the time of Varus, Augustus created an edict and nobody went. East of the Rhine ever again. I don't think they would have come across the channel. I think Gaul in the end might well have been liberated Germany was already largely liberated. I think Western Europe would have been Maintained its Druidic Celtic culture The legions might have continued to win out in Judea and Parthia, but they might not and if they had not one and managed to destroy Jerusalem, I don't think Christianity would exist in the way that it does now. Because part of the reason that Paul's take on things was able to gain ascendancy over the rest was because the people who had lived there were all dead, had been wiped out in the siege of Jerusalem. So I think the whole of Western European history would have been totally different. And if nothing else, we'd have maintained a warrior culture, an egalitarian warrior culture, that might have stood a chance of withstanding the Saxon and Norse invasions four or 500 years later. The whole of Western European history, the whole of world history then, would be entirely different. And it hinges on one battle on one afternoon.
3: So that was Manda You can hear more from her on the Romans at the English Heritage Festival of History on the 16th and 17th of July. BBC History magazine will also have a stand at the festival, so do pop over and say hello. In the July issue of the magazine, you'll find a free guide to help you plan your day at the Festival of History, so pick up a copy for more information. Or you can go to the English Heritage website at www.english-heritage.org.uk. We'd really like to hear what you think about the podcast, so you can email us at podcast at and tell us what you think. Alternatively, we've got a voicemail where you can leave a message and give us your thoughts about the podcast. The number is 0117 230 2002. That's a UK number, so UK landline callers will pay local rate, but overseas charges may vary. We'll broadcast or read out any particularly trenchant, witty, or insightful comments in future podcasts. So that's it for this week. Next time round, we've got the Second World War Operation Crossbow and an investigation into the layout of Victorian lunatic asylums.